Turn in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation, the second chapter. Beginning with verse 8. Revelation 2, beginning with verse 8. And as you, as you find that, if you do not already know John 20, 21, would you hold your finger in Revelation 2 and turn to chapter, John chapter 20, verse 21. <clears throat> May we bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the experience we have had already in worship, in praise, in adoration, and in challenge as we have heard musically spoken to our heart the message of Jesus, that Jesus is the answer, that with Him we can dwell in Beulah land right here and now, as well as looking forward to going to glory. We pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to us through the Word of God, and may He do His office work of conviction. We're powerless without the Spirit moving upon this people, and so may Thy Spirit do His work bringing lost people to Jesus. We ask it in His name. Amen. There's a background and firm foundational basis for everything said this morning in the message. The words of John 20, 21, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Would you say that out loud with me? Even as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And in Revelation 2, beginning with verse 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, who was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall receive tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the keys to the kingdom. Is that what he says? And I will make thee wealthy and rich. Is that what he says? I will put you in a position where you'll never have any kind of temptations or trials or tribulations. Is that what he says? No. He says, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Alan Sigger lived from 1888 to 1916. He wrote these words. I have a rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade when spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air. Franklin Delano Roosevelt on June 17, 1936 used the basis of Sigler's verse and made a parody of it when he said to the American people in his accepting the renomination of his party to serve another term as President of the United States, he said, this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. I also today want to make a parody of those words. And as I speak 
to the greatest people in all the world, I want to say to you that Glendale Baptist Church has a rendezvous with greatness. A rendezvous with greatness. When Abraham Lincoln was going for his second term as President of the United States, the Chicago Tribune ran a front page editorial. They stumped for him with these prophetic words. They said, half century hence to have lived today will be fame to have served it well, immortality. We know that we live more than half century from the time of the Civil War. And as we look back in retrospect, we can say those who lived in that age received fame. And those who served that age well live on in the annals of recorded history in immortality and will for all time. I want us to think for a moment about the cycles of history. 19 of the 21 world's great civilizations have risen in power and decayed in ruin, not from outside enemies, but from internal decay. America is 200 years old. The average age of the world's great civilizations is 200 years. These nations have progressed through this sequence from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependency back again to bondage. All in 200 years. America is 200 years old. Where do we fit into this cycle? I want us to notice some disturbing signs in our age. The unisex trends teaching us in an ungodly sort, in an unbiblical, unscriptural fashion that men and women are to play the same roles in life. They're to wear the same clothes, to have the same hairstyle, they're to look alike. And they're to act alike and they're to do alike. The Women's Liberation Movement and the ERA Amendments and all of these other things are trained triggers by satanic forces to cause us and to force us into a world that was not meant by God to so be. Burton suggests and predicts that by the year 2000 A.D. we will have an entire unisex world, same role for men and women. And we're fast going in that direction. This is the reason we would appeal to men to wear hairstyles that look like men. Appeal to women to wear clothes that look like women's clothes. And to appeal to men to be mannish and women to be womanish. And to get from the Word of God our standards rather than getting our standards from society. Already men spend more, I understand, more on perfume and preparations and so on, even more almost on hair tonics and hairsprays and all kinds of things than women do. A scientist in California predicts that within 15 years, scientists will know how to make carbon copies of people. We're living in an age when Miss Madeline O'Hara Murray, perhaps Satan's chief advocate, chief envoy in the earth today, is making great inroads in atheism. She has already founded the atheistic church and is doing all she can to try to get God, the Bible, and every last part of 
the ideals and principles of godliness that are in American products and American standards of living and American government discarded. And I received a letter from a friend of mine who runs the Faith, Prayer, and Track League in Kansas City. I was in a revival meeting there a few years ago. I visited that wonderful track place and met the man who owns it and runs it, heard his testimony and had a wonderful experience there. I received a letter not long ago, just a few days ago, saying that when he was in Houston at Christmas time, he met the son of Mrs. Murray. And that son is as militant as is his mother. And in the meeting, my friend asked Mr. Murray if he were a Christian. Mr. Murray was very nice, said he was not a Christian, didn't have not, had no time for Christians. And my friend talked with him for about five minutes at the airport. Just a few weeks ago, he received a long-distance phone call from Houston from an attorney. And the attorney said, Mr. Murray is suing you for $2 million for asking him if he were a Christian. What's behind that? It's part of the age in which we live, an attempt to force this man who prints biblical tract literature, sends it out all over the world, much of it free. It's to try to force him into receivership, into bankruptcy, spending all of his money that he should be spending on getting the gospel out to try to defend his name in court. That's the age in which we live. Satan worship with its nude girls at the altar is already in vogue, and in Louisville there's a church of Satan with a nude girl at the altar and all kinds of immorality being committed in that way. A 73-year-old California psychologist who died a few years ago instructed that his body be packed in dry ice because he believes that in just a few years we will have the ability to bring back to life those who have died if they have not been embalmed. So all of this stretches our imagination, makes us run wild in our thoughts. We wonder what kind of an age we live in. Paul Harvey reported this past week in his editorial columns. There's a growing popularity of biorhythmic approach to predicting human behavior. The relationships of the physical and the emotional and the intellectual all being studied and graphed can reveal or, or predict the susceptibility of individuals and their behavior. And said he, if this had been followed, Fran Tarkington would not have been placed in the Super Bowl because on that day when Fran was in the Super Bowl, he seemed to be able to do nothing right. And said Paul Harvey, this was because his biorhythmic approach was off. Well, that's just some of the age in which we live. Now, I want to ask you this. When we think of all of these signs of times, when we think of that which is just before us, and we think of the words of the Lord to the church at Smyrna, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life, it causes us to think through what kind of an age we live in as a church of Jesus Christ, who have received the words of Jesus, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. There have been six periods of church history, from 64 to 313, the period of persecution, from 300 to 800, 
A.D., the period of political involvement. From the year 800 to 1517, the period of waging wrong warfare. From the period of 1517 to 1600, the period of the Reformation. From the period of 1600 to 1800, the period of the awakening. And from 1800 to the present moment, the period of the modern missionary movement. What is the next period? What is it to be if the Lord tarries? And I believe the Lord is coming quickly. He may come this week. I'm sorry he didn't come last week. I believe the Lord Jesus is coming to this earth. I do not know the day. I do not know the hour. But I believe he is coming. And Jesus said, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. For in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Our Lord is coming to this earth again. But suppose he should tarry for a week or a month or a year or 10 years or 20 years or 100 years or 1,000 years. What will be the next era, the next period of church history? Some are predicting a period of eclipse in which the church, like when the moon is eclipsed or the sun is eclipsed, the church will go into darkness. And others are predicting a period of expansion. W.A. Criswell said this. He said, unless the church changes its approach to world evangelism, and to New Testament methods of evangelism. And unless we change our approach to winning our neighbors and winning our community and knocking on the doors of the people of our city in the back alleys and the back lanes, unless we change the approach we're making now, America, the world, by the year 2000, will see fewer than 2% as believers in Christ. This makes me blush for shame when I think that when I started preaching at Glendale 20 years ago, 33% of the world were professing Christians. And today that percentage is minute, less than 18%. W.A. Criswell says, according to the studies being made currently, that if we do not do some drastic thing, if we do not change our approaches to go out and rediscover the New Testament methods of evangelism, there will only be 2% of the world's population who call themselves believers or Christians by the year 2000. Well, in light of all of this, what shall we do? What shall we say? Jesus said, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. He wrote this to the church at Smyrna. Why do churches fail? Leon Kilbreth, who has stood here and preached to us on a number of occasions, Leon Kilbreth, the great Sunday school evangelist who is going up and down America trying to help churches get rediscover the New Testament plan of evangelism. He said this, 95% of the churches in the United States are ineffective in their mission of carrying out the Great Commission. He said 10% of the churches baptize 90% of the converts and 90% of the churches baptize 10% of the converts. And 10% of the churches have a growing Sunday school. 5% of the churches have an effective visitation program. <coughs> Only 1% of the churches have an effective soul winning program. And less than 1% of the churches baptize over 100 converts in a year. And then he said, last year, Baptists showed an increase in Sunday school attendance and attended Sunday school enrollment but it was a very minute increase, very, very small. And, Brother Krilbreth, according to the graphs and studies that others have made, he said, 
less than 1% of the churches produced that very minute growth in Sunday school. In other words, churches everywhere are going into eclipse. Now, what shall we do about it? What can we do about it? I want to lay on our hearts this morning three thoughts concerning the Lord's church and our place with it. Number one, the church in retreat. Number two, the church in re- royalty. And the, number three, the church in reward. First of all, we want to think about the church in retreat. What does this mean, the church in retreat? What are we talking about? The context of the passage we read to you a few moments ago was the church at Smyrna. But taken in context, this church is one of seven churches to which Jesus penned through the Apostle John the last message, the last written message given. You recall that Jesus founded the church himself in Matthew chapter 16 when he said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, upon this bedrock I will build my church. Jesus said to Peter, Thou art Petros, a little pebble. Upon this bedrock, this Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever thou shalt be bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. He gave the church, he founded the church and gave it a marching order when he founded it. He said, I've given you the keys. He didn't give those keys to Peter. He gave them to the church, and the key is the message, this book, the wonderful message of the atoning work of Christ, that God in Christ is able to reconcile a world unto himself. And then Jesus commissioned the church in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He said, go ye into all the world (coughs) and preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then he said in Mark chapter 16, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And in Luke, ye are witnesses of these things. And in John, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. And in Acts 1.8, ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. This was the commission of Jesus. And he empowered the church in, in the book of Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Ghost came at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came to to sit upon individuals and to fill the body of believers, a once and for all Pentecost in which the church was empowered with the Spirit of God to do the work that God had for it to do. But there's one other thing Jesus said did to the church. He gave it a, a reminder, a reminder in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. The last message of the Lord to the church was a message of repentance. He said to the church at Ephesus, You're active, you're sound in doctrine, but you're deficient in love. He said to the church at Pergamos, you stand firm in the midst of Satan's crowd, but you're heretical in doctrine. He said to the church at Thyatira, you're filled with good works and love, but you have false prophets in you. He said to the church at Sardis, you have a name that you're alive, but in reality you're dying. He said to the church at Laodicea, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, You're self-satisfied, therefore I will spew you out of my mouth. 
And only to the church at Smyrna and Philadelphia did he word of, give a word of commendation. The church at Philadelphia was a loyal church, and he gave it the open door. The church at Smyrna was a poor church. And he said, I want you to be faithful, faithful unto death, and I'll give thee the crown of life. What does it mean, the church in retreat? I think of the church in retreat when I think of worldliness. A church filled with worldliness, gaudiness, members who have lost their modesty and virtue. Remember that a church is a body of baptized believers who have banded themselves together to carry out the commission of Christ. The church is not the building, as beautiful as this building is. The church is not the beautiful chandeliers with those Greek letters, Cairo, which mean Christ, the cross on them, pointing men to Jesus, the light of the world. Church are not these beautiful stained glass windows that remind us of all the precious stones that are in the holy city, the new Jerusalem spoken of in Revelation 21. The church is not this building, brick and mortar and clay. The church are believers, a body of baptized believers who abandon themselves together to carry out the commission of Christ. And when I think of the church in retreat, I think of a church, congregation, be people, God's people, who have gotten their eyes off of Jesus and are filled with worldliness and immorality and impurity. In our area, on Smith Drive, there's a group of committed people. I don't know whether they're all believers and Christians or not, but they've got some gumption. They've written a petition against an ungodly group that want to sell beer and whiskey in a place of business right behind them. And I hope they win the contest. And I hope we have an opportunity to sign petitions also saying we register complaints against those who would put beer and whiskey all around us and cause children to go in and out where they're selling this mess. And yet I think of Christians who constantly patronize stores that sell beer when you could go just a little bit further and buy from a grocer that doesn't sell beer. I say to you, that's the church in retreat. That's the church in worldliness. And a church with some strong convictions and power will say, I'm going to, if I have to pay a penny more, I'm going to do it in order to have some stands and convictions. I, I wish to God that the Lord would lay that on the hearts of every one of us. I think of the church in retreat when I think of Christians lining up at the movie theaters to go in and watch trashy, filthy, X-rated movies that portray the sacred things of God's wonderful creativity in our bodies and to make an open lust scene on the screens for these. I think of the church in retreat when I think of the worldliness of members who say, I just have to have a, a little social drink. They blame this on Jesus and say, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? <laughs> I want to submit to you the question is not what did Jesus do 2,000 years ago, but what would he do today? If the Lord came to Bowling Green today, would he go in these liquor joints? Would he go buy wine and whiskey and beer at these stores? Can you fashion Jesus doing that? Taking it home, pouring it out, and knowing your appetite, that you're all extremists. If you drink one little dram of it, you want another dram, you want some more, and some more, and some more, and pretty soon it'll lead you to drunkenness. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? I say a thousand times no. So when we think of the church in retreat, we think of the church filled with worldliness, the church without any standards, the church without any convictions, and the church is full of it today, not just this church, but churches across the land. 
And I thank God that there are believers to whom I speak this morning who have some strong convictions and stands against these things. And then I think of the church in retreat as the church walking by money instead of money and by sight instead of by faith. I believe God wants the church of the Lord Jesus to operate in faith. I believe the Lord wants the church not to so much count its money and decide how much it can count on that it has, but the church to operate by faith, to move out into areas and realms that we do not have the finances to take care of, but to move out by faith and do it because God said to do it. Not because we've all, we all know that we're wealthy. You know, I'm interested from time to time about what people think of Glendale. I'd like for us to have as good an image as we can. But I'd lots rather have a good image before Jesus than the world, wouldn't you? <coughs> I'm interested in what the Lord thinks of us. I told you, I think, one time a lady called me on the phone and said they were in need financially. And you know, we, we don't have much money here. A lot of people don't believe that. And they say, well, you've got a red carpet on the floor. You've got a pretty building. They called and said, uh, we have a need and would you help us? And we try to meet needs. We try to help people, really. And this uh, family, I, we didn't have anything that time. I didn't have anything personally and our church didn't have anything in the benevolent fund. So I asked two of our deacons to go and call on this family, try to explain that, see what the needs were. They went out to this very nice home. and that and the other and so on and I believe it was a real need as far as they could see I'm certainly not making fun of that not making light or being critical at all but the deacons tried to explain that we didn't have anything at that time that we try to meet the needs of our own people try to help them if we can sometimes we're just out of the funds and we don't have anything tried to explain that as nice as they could and that when I don't guess they'd had time to get back to the church and I got a telephone call from this woman and she lambasted me from one end of Bowling Green to the other and lambasted our church and talked about how mean and wicked and hypocritical we were. And she said, I don't believe a blankety-blank thing about your lying. She said, you sent those men out here to say that we don't, you don't have any money. She said, that's a lie. You're bound to have money. You couldn't have those buses and you couldn't have this and you couldn't have that. A big church like yours doesn't have any money. But I want to tell you, if you'd visit our meetings on Monday, you'd find out every Monday we have a a finance meeting, a requisition meeting to try to put out the nickels and pennies to try to get this church by and so on, you'd find out we don't have anything. And I was just amazed at that woman telling me that she didn't believe us. Well, I want to tell you, the power of the church does not reside in its money. It resides in its faith. The power of the church does not reside in how much, how much financial resources we have in the bank, but how much spiritual resources do we have in God? The church in retreat is the church that leans upon its finances and its money to get the things done. But the church victorious, the church triumphant, is the church that can put its trust in God. God says, do it. And we'll say, we'll do it because you said to do it, Lord. And that's what I'm praying 
our church will do and be. And I want us to think for a moment about the church in royalty. The church at Smyrna, Jesus said, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. Thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of they, them that say they're Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. He said, Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil will cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. You'll have tribulation, but be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. The church in royalty is that church that walks in faith. Not by sight, but by faith. You remember that Peter was in a boat and he saw Jesus walking on the water. And Peter said, Lord, if that's really, if that's really you, if that's Jesus out there, Lord, bid me to come and let me walk on this water. I want to walk to you. What a man Peter was. Jesus said, just come, come on. And Peter stood on the edge of that boat. Now, I suppose if he'd looked down at that water and he thought, oh my, look at the water. I can't do that. Well, I don't have, a, I don't have the resources and I, I, I don't have those engineers to come build a bridge from here to Jesus over that water. I don't know what I'm going to do. Just sit here. Is that what he said? Well, he didn't even look at the water. He looked at Jesus and he began to just walk out there and Bob Stevenson says his faith put substance to that water and he began to walk out on the substance of faith. What did he walk on? Did he walk on water? I believe he walked on faith. Just walked right out there on that bridge of faith to Jesus until... He looked down, and he thought, oh, my, look, I'm doing what nobody's ever done before. And he began to sink, and he said, Lord, save me. And the Lord reached out his arms with a smile and with faith, brought him safely in. I believe the Lord honors the church that walks by faith. I believe the Lord honors the believer that walks by faith. I've met with a number of people who tried to figure out how they could tithe their incomes and they go down their budget and they make this and this and this and they say, well, look, I've got this bill and this bill and this bill and this bill and this bill. When they get down to the end, they don't have any money left. And they say, how can I tithe? They don't have any money left. And I say, well, let's reverse it. Let's put up here God's tithe first, 10%. Put that right at the top. And then add all the other things. They still don't have any money left. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. They say, how do you know that, preacher? Because God says it. God says it, and by faith I believe it. And when we begin to do what God says to do, just because God says to do it, then we begin to see what God can do. And I believe that's the church Jesus will bless. The church in royalty is the church composed of individual believers who are willing to be faith people, a people of faith. God said, Abraham, leave her of the Chaldees. I think Abraham said, Lord, where am I going? God said, I'll tell you later, just come on, don't ask me, come on. And Abraham got his cattle and his wife and his family, and they left Ur and went to Haran. God said, I want you to leave Haran and go down, and I'll show you where to go. And he began to go with God, and he didn't know where he was going till he got there. And I believe that's the way God blesses his people today. When you and I begin to walk by faith, simply because God says to do it, and we walk with the Lord in the light of his word. What a glory he sheds on our way. Be thou faithful, Jesus said to that church at Smyrna. And so in the age in which we live, is the church headed for eclipse or is the church headed for expansion? What are we going to do? We will go into eclipse if we walk by sight and if we walk according to the course of this world and if we walk in worldliness. But if we'll set our eyes on Jesus, Jesus says, come, 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 and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
Be thou faithful unto death. Don't be afraid of tribulation. Don't be afraid when all men don't speak well of you. Don't be afraid of all the trials of life, but walk by faith. I think he says the same thing to individuals. I speak to people this morning, some who have troubled hearts, some whose hearts are heavy because of burdens, some whose hearts are heavy because of sorrow and grief. I speak to some whose hearts are heavy because of financial pressures. You don't know where you're going to get the money to pay the bills this coming week. And you say, what shall I do? What can I do? Some of you are lonely. Some of you are hurt because of disappointments you've faced. Well, I want to ask you if you'll put your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I don't know how you'll do it, but God said, if you'll look to me, I'll bless you and I'll be to you better than a husband or a wife or children. I'll be one who will never leave you nor forsake you. And I want us to think for a moment of the church rewarded. The church rewarded. Jesus said, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown. I'll give thee the crown of life. Well, there are a lot of things that verse means. I want you to listen in this closing moment as I try to lay this on your heart. I think, number one, Jesus doesn't get any glory out of people who begin to walk with God and then turn their backs on him and fiddle with the world and get all messed up in the world and all dirty in the world and then they come back and then they go back in the world and they come back again and they go back in the world. Jesus said, when you come to me, you be faithful all the way to death. Just be faithful to me all the way. Secondly, I believe that means be thou faithful unto death. If need be, die for me. I want you to live for me, but if need be, die for me. Be a martyr if necessary. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Yes. But there's an interesting thing. That word death and the word witness and the word martyr are all related. Be thou a martyro. Be thou a martyr. Be thou a witness, a faithful witness, and I'll give thee the crown of life. And I think the Lord is saying, if you will be faithful to me as a witness of all of these things, being true to the commission that I've given you to do, and you'll go out doing what I told you to do, I'll give you the crown. And what is the crown? I want to talk about that tonight. The crown at the end of the way. They sought for a city whose founder and builder was God. I want to talk about that tonight. But right now, let's think. What is the crown that he wants to offer to those who are faithful? What better crown is there than to hear in your soul the well done of God, to know that you're pleasing to Jesus? I talked to a man this week whose son had been disobedient to him and he had been a rebellious son. And then about a year ago, something changed in that young man's life. He just got turned clear around and he began to walk in a way that honored his father. His father said, I'm not a man that gives compliments very freely. But he said, the other night I had a talk with my son and I told him I was proud of him said that father, you never saw a boy beam as much 
as when I told my boy that I was proud of him. Can you think of anything better than to hear the Lord say, I'm proud of you. I like the way you're doing it. I like the way you're going about your work. I like the way the church is faithful to the cause of Christ. I like the way you are serving because you're doing it the way God told us to do it. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown, the crown of life. Oh, I think he means something else. Be thou faithful unto death as a Christian. Be thou faithful unto death as a church. Be thou faithful in your witness, in winning other people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I will give thee a crown of life. Perhaps in heaven someday we'll hear someone come and say, All hail, beloved, but for thee to my soul to death had been a prey. I think one of the crowns we have is to see somebody else's life changed because we've passed their way. How many of you have ever experienced, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever experienced dealing with someone else and pouring some of your life into their life? And after a little while, you begin to see some changes taking place. And you begin to see a Christ-filled life being produced. Uh, isn't that a crown for you? Isn't that a joy to you? The preacher told the story of picking up a 12-year-old hitchhiker. He was going into town, and the preacher asked the boy if he was a Christian. He said, no, I'm not a Christian. He said, uh, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And the boy said, well, I think you ought not to. My dad doesn't like preachers, and he doesn't want anybody to talk to me about being a Christian. But the preacher witnessed to the boy anyway. And they got to the home. The preacher said, I want to go up and meet your dad. The boy said, I wish you wouldn't. My dad doesn't like preachers. He won't give you a very nice welcome. He'll be mean to you. The preacher didn't pay any attention. He went up anyway. When the dad came to the door and looked and said, I know who you are. You're a preacher. I don't have any use for you. Get out of here. Leave. I don't want to talk to you. He said to the boy, I'll tan your hide for bringing this preacher home. That little boy began to slip out of his home and go to church. And finally, that preacher, that pastor, was able to win that boy to Jesus. One day, the boy was sick. The preacher got a call on the phone. It was that dad. He said, I thought I'd never do a fool thing like this, but my boy's very sick. I don't have any money. I don't have any way to get him in the hospital. I wonder if you could help me. Pastor said, sure, I'll help you. I'll help you get him in the hospital. He got him in the hospital. The little boy was so sick. So sick. One day as the pastor came, the boy was in an oxygen tent. The boy, 12-year-old boy said, Pastor, I want to tell you, you told me about Jesus, and I love you, and I wish you would pray for my daddy. The pastor prayed for his daddy. Not long after that, that little boy died. The pastor had the boy's funeral, and after the funeral, the daddy said, Pastor, I'm ashamed of one of the things that I've said to you. 
Would you please come to my house and show me how to give my heart to Jesus? The pastor was able to win that old rough daddy to the Lord. He became a great servant of God. Now that's a reward. That's a crown right here in this life. Be thou faithful, and I'll give thee the crown of life. Listen, dear friends. The one with whom we have to do is the one of all eternity. I would rather be faithful to my Lord than faithful to the dearest person in the earth. How do you feel about it today? Faithfulness begins by faith, by putting your trust and faith in the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus, slain from the foundation of the world. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Do you know him as your Savior? Jesus went to the cross. He shed his blood on the cross for our sins. And when we trust him, he forgives us. But the blood of Jesus can cleanse you from sin this morning if you'll put your trust in him. Would you do it for Jesus' sake? May we bow together in prayer, please. Every head bowed and her eyes closed. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee that the Lord Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. But we pray that just now someone would turn away from sin and tragedy and a wasted life and wasted years and would turn to Christ. And Lord, in, instill in the hearts of every believer here today a desire to be faithful to you, faithful to the King until we get home. Oh God, do it for Jesus' sake. We pray that right now thou will break the heart of some man, some woman, some boy, some girl and may be drawn to Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Will you stand, please? We're going to sing God's invitation. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. I want to earnestly ask you not to leave during the singing of this hymn, please. Just stay right in the auditorium. And God is dealing with your life. And if you're here without Christ, you've never been saved, you can't be faithful to Him. You see, faithfulness begins by faith, by a faith commitment. It begins by putting your trust and faith in the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. Won't you do that today? Asking Christ to come into your heart and be your Savior, your Lord, for Jesus' sake. If you're already saved and you need a church home, you don't have a church home in or around this city, may I urge you to come today and take a stand for God. Begin to serve Him here at this place. Do what the Holy Spirit leads you to do while we begin to sing. Who'll step out first for the King? Someone may need to come, rededicate his life to the Lord, or to say, Lord, I want to be more faithful to you. Do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. While we begin to sing, who will come?